And <laughs> one of the reasons I, I chose to preach through Joshua is I knew we'd come into these sections kind of uh, after the halfway point of the book, and, and I would have to wrestle with how to preach these names of cities and these, you know, portion allotments. I thought, man, I, I need to challenge myself as a, as a pastor. You know, it's the kind of the equivalent of saying, you know, maybe I'll, I'll do an Ironman, you know, like a triathlon or something. So it has been quite an interesting uh, endeavor, actually, and one that I'm thankful I did. I, I don't know if uh, you're doing your Bible reading and you get to these sections. It's very easy to get lost in uh, the places and the names, even just pronouncing them out loud or in your head as you do your reading uh, can be challenging, sometimes grueling. But I hope that it's been worth it to find some nuggets of gold or at the least. Sometimes I think the purpose of passages like this is just to build a context. Maybe uh, you don't need to have all of these names memorized, but it is helpful to know that the names of the tribes of Israel, to know, roughly speaking, where they were in the land, because geography matters so often. Um, <laughs> thanks for the nod, Alan. And, uh, and the things that happen in this physical land of Israel are, of course, very relevant to us. It's not just a, a, a fantasy tale. You know, it's not just you know, where is Never Never Land? Like, this is not mythology. This is not fantasy. These are real places, real people. And so we do care about these place names. So with that set up, uh, as we've been doing, we're just going to walk through. I'm not going to um, read all of the verses here. We're going to try to cover a little bit of territory. You can read them for yourselves. Most of them are city names. I will read some verses that do have some significance, so um, so we won't won't just forego all of it, but just know that, uh, yeah, read through some of those verses yourself. Okay, we are now in Joshua 19, the inheritance for Simeon. Now, the tribe of Simeon, it does have an interesting history. It dovetails with the history of the Levites. We talked about the Levites already, but Way back, you know, all of these tribe names are named after literal people. Um, These were all brothers of the children of Jacob. And Simeon and his brother Levi are somewhat notorious. We talked about this, that way back in Genesis 34, you have this very um, almost sinister tale. There's a lot of evil in it, and everyone's a bad guy. But essentially, their sister Dinah is raped by a prince, And so Levi and Simeon come up with this plot to kill all the men of that city in vengeance for the rape of their sister. This is something that is not condoned by God. It's a wrong response to the the sin, the true injustice of Dinah's rape. Um, But after this, they're kind of tainted with this idea of being um, covered in blood. And so years later, when Jacob is dying and he's He's blessing all of his children, the, what will end up being the tribes of Israel. This is what he says. If you want to turn to Genesis 49, you might, you might as well put a finger in Genesis 49 because we're going to keep going back to it um, tonight. Uh, but here is the quote-unquote blessing for Simeon. <clears throat> Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. 
Let my soul come into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. So the glory of Jacob, let it not be with these two men. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. We talked already how Levi, this was uh, sort of fulfilled in that they um, don't have a portion in the land. So if you look in Joshua for where do the Levites get to settle in, there is no allotment for them. That's sort of a fulfillment, but we also talked about with the Levites, they end up making up for their curse. It's ironic, it's in the shedding of more blood, but we, we, we talked about how the Levites were willing to shed the blood of their brothers. They were sinful and disobedient to the Lord, committing idolatry, and uh, the Levites end up taking up arms, and they're willing to slaughter their own brothers who are sinning heinously against the Lord, and in a way that, that proves their faithfulness again to God. And so they don't get a part in the land, but they end up becoming the priestly tribe, the ones who do deal exclusively, you could say, in blood, because now they sacrifice the animals and offer that to the Lord. So stop shedding blood now, Levites. Now you're a part of the tribe that... Um, that um, makes the offerings to the Lord of, of the sacrifice of oxen, sheep, and so on. But Simeon, on the other hand, carries this curse. And they become less and less significant in the history of the Israelites as you go on. Their tribe was the smallest and the weakest. And here it actually says at the end that the inheritance in uh, Joshua 19.9, the inheritance of the people of Simeon form part of the territory of the people of Judah. Because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them, the people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. So it's, uh, we talked a little bit already about the, the allotment to, to Judah, but all that to say really uh, what's happening is that the tribe of Simeon is so small, they could easily be accommodated in the territory of Judah. And in fact, ultimately, they get sort of absorbed into it and they kind of fade off the map <laughs> um why why is this happening well there's no clear statement of scripture outside of genesis 49 that their bloodshed their violence is what causes um them to kind of fade into non-existence um, and of course in the bible there are many many places where violence is something that is cautioned and warned against you have a proverbs chapter 3 verse 31 if you want to turn there you can just listen um, but proverbs three thirty-one, just right at the beginning puts it very simply do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways the way of violence tends to lead towards destruction of course but ultimately Violence tends to lead to self-destruction. A lot of violent people, they meet violent ends. And so you, you kind of get that idea that these violent, uh, this violent tribe, they, they faded into obscurity uh, as a result of being violent people. Just what happens. You know, you go to, um, you know, in the streets, and if you settle everything through violence, one day someone is going to commit violence against you and uh, perhaps end your life. But the root of violence is anger. Listen to R.C. Sproul. He says, anger is not in itself sinful, but 
It may be the occasion for sin. The issue of self-control is the question of how we deal with anger. Violence, tantrums, bitterness, resentment, hostility, and even withdrawn silence are all sinful responses to anger. What should Simeon and Levi have done, had done back when they found out their sister was raped? Well, surely not a deceitful plan to murder every single male in the city. That is not justice. And so we need to be careful about letting any anger root in its heart, lest it come out. Maybe not in violent ways. Maybe you say, well, I'm not a violent person. I don't need to worry about this. Well, anger can produce all sorts. Actually, the context of this R.C. Sproul quote isn't a book about marriage. <laughs> so it's <laughs> talking about letting anger exist in your marriage. Maybe you think, oh, well, I would never, you know, hit my husband, hit my wife. But bitterness, resentment, hostility, withdrawn silence, if that's coming out of anger, it's still a sinful response. So let anger be something not known amongst uh, the people of God. Just a little lesson there. But Simeon, really, there's not a whole lot to learn except they were violent people and then they just disappear. They fade out in the history of uh, the tribes. Zebulun, next, in verses 10 through 16. Uh, now, look at your map and note the tribe of Zebulun on there, right? So, as with many of the cities, and again, we have boundaries that are sometimes listed as like geographic boundaries, but then you have boundaries here listed in Joshua 19 that are just cities, right? The names of cities. And you kind of form a boundary by looking at where the cities are, and you got to assume, okay, then if, if that's the northernmost city, that's as far north as the boundary is, and the southernmost, and so on. So if you look at Zebulon, uh, we haven't found every city that encompasses Zebulon, but most archaeological work of the cities we've discovered places that region as Zebulon. Okay, we're going to face a problem here. <laughs> In Genesis 49, 13, again, this is Jacob blessing his sons, and these sons are the like progenitors of the tribes. This is what he says about Zebulon. Genesis 49, 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 33, or just listen. Deuteronomy 33, 18, there's another blessing for Zebulun. And here, Moses says, Deuteronomy 33:18 and on, and of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar, in your tents. They shall call peoples to their mountain. There they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Not only that, but Jewish historian Josephus, who commanded Jewish forces in Galilee, which is the Sea of Galilee, is that, 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 that big lake up there. It's really gigantic. It's... it's um, it has its own you know, climate and all that. Um, that whole region, Galilee, Josephus said this, the tribe of Zebulun's lot included the land which lay as far as the lake uh, of Gennesareth, or the Sea of Galilee, it's another name for it, and that which belonged to Carmel and the Mediterranean Sea. Matthew 4.13. Maybe you're starting to see the problem here. I'll, I'll, I'll let Alan tell us what the problem is in a second here. <laughs> Matthew 
And leaving Nazareth, he, that is Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, so now he's going to quote Isaiah 1 and 2, might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, Jewish tradition is that Zebulun was a seafaring tribe, that their flag had like a ship on it. All right, Alan, what's the problem here? (laughs) Yeah, Zebulun is landlocked. (laughs) It doesn't touch Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and it doesn't touch the Mediterranean Sea. So why does everyone talk as if it's touching both or even connecting them, which, is, which would make it a very prosperous nation. And yet, all the archaeologists place the boundaries of Zebulun like this. Well, and I looked it up. Right? I'm not going to repeat all of the, the biblical archaeology you know, uh, articles that I read. But let's say this. The bottom line is that there's not going, ultimately going to be any kind of contradiction between archaeological findings and what Scripture says. Um, there must have been some sense, at least, that, uh, that Zebulun had some kind of interest and control over what happened in the Mediterranean Sea and in the Sea of Galilee. And again, we haven't found every single city uh, that would have come to this territory. So it could be the case that there are some cities that you find are really close to the Sea of Galilee, really close to the Mediterranean Sea. It's very difficult to imagine that, um, that there wasn't some connection. We haven't found it archaeologically just yet, but when you have the Old Testament and the New Testament and Josephus, and even Jewish tradition, all kind of agreeing that, yeah, Zebulun, they were a great seafaring nation. Either this is just like one person reciting like a lie and it just keeps getting perpetuated, which is a problem if you have, you know, Jesus repeating a lie. Um, there is some way or some sense in which Zebulun was this great seafaring uh, tribe that had its hand both in the Sea of Galilee and in the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, yeah. So that that's actually one of the reconciliations is that they they actually had um, you know cities that were not like right on the coast, but rather important trade cities that regularly um, did uh, had trade in, say, the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great point. So that that actually is kind of what archaeologists. Um, do to sort of reconcile that is that they, it's not, it doesn't seem at all that Zebulun ever had identifiably like a city directly on the coast of the Sea of Galilee or on, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. But it, it's definitely possible that one of these cities that we, we don't know exactly where they were, uh, were significant in the trade of the sea, even if they weren't directly on the sea. All right. And, the river? Oh, the river on the east side? Yeah. 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 
So anyway, uh, if you, this, I, I mentioned all this. If uh, any uh, young people listening to this want to become an archaeologist and figure out this minis- uh, mystery, there are still many archaeological mysteries that you can discover. Now, going back to just some, some amount of, um, of application for this, uh, Judges 1.30 says that along with many others, we've already talked about this before, but many other tribes, Zebulun did not drive out all the Canaanites, all right, uh, as they were supposed to. But they do end up uh, fighting alongside the judges, Deborah and Barak, against um, a Canaanite king. And in fact, one of the judges, Elon, was from Zebulun, so they are a tribe that that did try to honor the Lord later, even if they didn't do it here in wiping out all of the nations uh, or all the Canaanites from their midst. And going back to the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, which is a preface to uh, a Christmas prophecy of Jesus. You know, the whole passage about um, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor and uh, and so on. That is headed by Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, which, which I read, um, which was quoted in Matthew 4, 13. Um, it says that there's like a contempt, that the contempt of Zebulun and Naphtali would somehow be overturned. What is that referring to in Isaiah 9, uh, 1 and 2, and Mark, 14, uh, Mark 4, 13, quoting it? Well, uh, if you remember, the 10 northern tribes, so all the tribes besides Benjamin and Judah, they all formed their own independent kingdom after the death of Solomon. And they never have a good king. In other words, they're, always, they, they're wicked all the way until 720, approximately 720 BC, when the Assyrians come and wipe them out. So you could count Zebulun in one of, the, uh, one of those um, recipients of God's wrath and, and justice and judgment because of their sin. And so there is a contempt, you could say, uh, on them, on Nephtali as well, that despite being maybe prosperous, despite having this very um, uh, blessed seafaring trade, they couldn't outlast God's judgment if they were to neglect the things of God. But that wasn't going to be the end of the story. As Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 uh, say, that Zebulun and Naphtali would be among the first to hear the good news of the gospel. Why? Because Jesus grew up and began his ministry in Zebulun and Naphtali. So those regions are exactly, well, Nazareth is either in or right next to Zebulun. So remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but where were his parents from? Nazareth. So where did he grow up? Nazareth. When he grew up, where did he, do mo- where, where did he go after? He went to Capernaum. Where's Capernaum? It's right there. <clears throat> off the Sea of Galilee, in the land. Now, they didn't have Zebulun and Naphtali at the time of Jesus because the whole thing was Roman, right? So, but those regions where those tribes were, technically Jesus grew up in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. That was his uh, hometown. That's where uh, he did his first works and his first ministry. And so Isaiah 9 is a prophecy about Zebulun and Naphtali, but really it's a prophecy about Jesus and where he would grow up and do ministry. So that is the significance of Zebulun. Moving on, Joshua 19. Inheritance for Issachar. Again, turning to Genesis 49, what's the blessing that's given to them? Genesis 49, verses 14 and 15. (laughs) Issachar 
is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Now, this is a peculiar blessing. (laughs) Imagine opening up that gift underneath the Christmas tree. Like, it's like when you get something from your parents and you're like, uh, what is this? Am I supposed to be happy or sad? I don't know what it is. Like, that's this verse. Even commentators, they're confused by these words, both because there's some interpretational issues, but also, like, what, what's, what's happening here? It's, is it a good thing, or is it a bad thing, or is it both? Um, here's some of the confusion. The word strong donkey, it could also mean bony donkey. So it's either a sign of health and prosperity, a strong donkey, or perhaps stubbornness, or it's a sign of weakness and famine. Another one? <laughs> we scared it back in you. Okay. <laughs> or it's a sign of weakness and famine, right? So, you know, it's just the way Hebrew works. We don't, I don't give you a Hebrew lesson, but um, yeah, it can either be a strong donkey or a bony donkey. Either something that's prosperous and healthy, perhaps stubborn, or something that's weak and stricken. Um, and then it says, uh, you can understand, of course, that there's a nice land and it's pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear. In other words, he saw that he wanted to plow and work this land. And then all of a sudden he's a servant at forced labor. So this could be just a figure of speech saying that the land was so good, they were content to be slaves of the land. You know, like this is a pleasant land. This is blessing. It's so good. I could live here forever, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just you found a place of great blessing. Why would you leave? It could be a statement like that, or it could be that they um, they really like the land so much that even when foreign forces came in and enslaved them, they said, okay, as long as we get to stay here. So they're willing to do forced labor to become slaves as long as they could still have, you could say, their creature comforts. So they're willing to trade liberty for creature comforts. So very different kinds of interpretations here, right? And uh, theologians, commentators are not exactly sure. Of course, the ESV uh, takes it more as there's something strong about them, but once they found this place of rest and pleasantness, it was kind of turned back against them and they became uh, enslaved by someone else. Problem with that interpretation would be that there is no record that the uh, tribe of Issachar was ever forced to be slaves for someone um, like this. There's times when the whole nation would be, but so maybe it's talking about that, but it's maybe a tenuous, um, a tenuous connection. The only other mention of Issachar Really, aside from maybe just the name, but like of anything they did, is First Chronicles twelve thirty two. You don't have to you don't have to go there, um, but it's in the context of of people who were benefiting or blessing David the king, and you have a mention of two hundred men of or chiefs of Issachar uh, who were who were wise in the ways of the world, or it talks about how they they understood the times. So, <laughs> what does that mean that they understood the times? So that's is it a prophetic thing? They could read a prophetic. Uh, situation, or is it they understood the times like they had their pulse, their finger on the pulse of the culture and the politics? Which one is it? Not sure either. So even that mention is a little bit nebulous. <laughs> like who were 
<laughs> these people that lived, uh, or who were these uh, people from the tribe of Issachar? I mean, like all the other northern tribes, they're conquered, they're exiled by the Assyrians, and even to this day, they're all scattered and lost, just like the other ten tribes. But it seems like up until then, you just have kind of this confusing sense of who they are and what they did. To be honest, I don't know exactly what to tell you (laughs) about this passage because I think it preaches that they were willing to trade liberty for creature comforts, if that's the interpretation, that here they were blessed to be strong and mighty, um, but they were willing to trade that in um, for enslavement as long as they got to keep their stuff. I mean, that's a very relevant message for today. Yeah, yeah, or or the, the well, you could look at that two ways, like um, as a bad thing or a good thing. Like, hey, this land's so blessed, like, yeah, I, I could stay here forever. Or they enslave themselves to prosperity, comfort, or ease, right? So it could go both ways on that too. So commentators are a little tossed up. I put that to you, and uh, I'll say this: you don't hear this a lot in sermons, but. Maybe you go and study it, and you can tell me <laughs> what, what's going on in this passage. I can give you all the options there. I think I kind of lean towards um, that idea of that they were willing to trade their, their liberty, liberties for creature comforts, and that's why they don't seem to be of any hardly significance. Um, you know, they, they're prosperous, but it's sort of a waste. Like, they were so blessed, but what did it amount to, right? Deuteronomy is a tremendous statement of, of uh, or I'm sorry, that was um, Zebulun. Uh, Isaiah 49, or I'm sorry, Genesis 49, um, it could go either way. But what we know is the result, that they hardly did anything noteworthy. Yes? I think in Hawaii, when we were there, you could lease land and build your house that you never owned. Never owned the land. Right, right, right. You only it. Yeah. Well, if you keep people kind of fat and happy, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll agree to a lot of things, you know. So, yeah, so may, maybe that's the story here. You, you notice there's not a whole lot said about them even here of really anything to kind of make them pop or stand out. So Issachar also just sort of fades out um, in a way like Simeon, but without even the the judgment of being a violent and wrathful people. So... What to make of the tribe of Issachar? <laughs> Literally, that's in my notes. Question mark? No answer. Yeah, I don't think it's related to Isaac. Um, Issachar? Yeah, no one names their kid Issachar. But, you know, Judah, Asher, um, Dan... <laughs> No one names their kid Gad anymore, I guess. But no, I'm talking about last names. Oh, oh, their last names, yeah. Yeah, but it's a car. No, right? Yeah, I've seen. I think Manasseh, but Issachar is just no one. So um, interesting for maybe the fact that they just um, peter out. You know, they were if they did start out as a strong donkey. They didn't end that way. If they started out as a bony donkey, well, that's all they ever were. 
um, until the donkey died. So that's just a car. Maybe uh, if you get any great insight into it, um, you can write a book about it and and get in a commentary. But anyway, <laughs> it's, it, that one was a tricky one. <laughs> Next is Asher, all right? Uh, and that's the, probably the last one we'll do today. Um, Asher, the next tribe. Who is Asher? Okay, Genesis 49.20. Again, going back to the blessings, just for a little hint at uh, what kind of people they were and what their future held for them. Genesis 49.20. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. It's a delicious prophecy there. But of course, generally, if you can afford to have rich food, you're doing pretty well for yourself. So prosperity, you can just think generally prosperity. Um, Fertile lands. Deuteronomy 33. And if you look, of course, on the map, Asher is on the northwest and uh, it's a nice coastal area, very rich, and um, you know it was open to the sea, much more obviously than Zebulun. Um, another blessing is uttered by Moses in Deuteronomy 33. So Deuteronomy 33, Moses says this about Asher. Verse 24, and 25. <clears throat> and of Asher, he said. Most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers, and let him dip his foot in oil. Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. Is it good news or bad news? It's good. If you can um, be uh, the favorite of the brothers, the most blessed of the sons, you can dip your feet in oil, Um, Iron and bronze were the the toughest, hardest metals they had uh, at the time. Um, That's all blessing. That seems to be very good. It's prosperity. This is a tribe that had everything going for them, had riches, and and, uh, in the eyes of all the other brothers would have been uh, looked up to. But again, like so many other tribes, they didn't drive out all the Canaanites either. You can go to Judges chapter 1, verse 31 through 32 for that. In fact, if you notice there in Asher, he talks about, in verse 29, uh, reaching to the fortified city of Tyre. You also have a mention of Sidon the Great in verse 28, Tyre and Sidon. If you are familiar with the prophets, you know these cities of Tyre and Sidon. Um, These two cities, they never ever had all of the inhabitants there driven out of them. And both cities continued to have a connection to Israel, but almost exclusively a negative one. For example, do you remember evil King Ahab, one of the worst kings of the northern tribe of Israel, the ten tribes, one of the worst kings, King Ahab, almost synonymous with the evil kings. He married a woman. Do you remember her name? Jezebel. Jezebel, one of the most iconic and notorious couples in the Old Testament, Ahab and Jezebel. You know, they persecuted um, Elijah and sought his death. They're the ones that set up the plan to take um, Naboth's vineyard and had him murdered, basically, based on a false accusation. Ahab and Jezebel are iconic figures of wickedness. Well, guess what? Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon. 
six different prophecies or prophets, six different prophets would all utter judgment against Tyre and Sidon. Isaiah 23.1, Jeremiah 25.22, Ezekiel 26, Ezekiel 28.1-19, Joel 3.4, Amos 1.9-10, Zechariah 9.2-4. Six prophets all spoke judgment against Tyre and Sidon, both for making... Um, uh, like pestering and tempting Israel to idolatry and sin. And then, actually, I just read this not too long ago, Ezekiel uh, 26 and 28. Uh, When Israel falls into the hands of Assyria and when Judah falls in the hands of the Babylonians, Tyre is thinking about how they're going to swoop in, you know, and uh, take some of the spoils, and they are mocking the people of God. So God says, well, I'm going, who are you to mock their judgment? They're getting judgment for following idols, just like you're doing. So guess what, Tyre? Judgment's coming for you. So um, six different prophets utter judgment against Tyre. And you could say more about Tyre. It comes up a lot in the Old Testament. But you get the picture. You wonder, what was that? Yeah, they were supposed to. It was supposed to be a part. Tyre and Sidon were supposed to be part of it, but they didn't, they didn't take those cities and they didn't drive out the Canaanites. So it allowed them to flourish and be this, this pain uh, in their side for you know, generations, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years. So you think how much grief would have been saved or avoided had Asher rooted out the Canaanites from the beginning and followed through with God, what God had commanded in terms of turning out all of these uh, wicked Canaanites, because they did exactly what God said they were going to do, which is if you don't drive them all out of the land, they're going to tempt your people. Your sons are going to marry their daughters. You're going to imbibe their pagan practices. And again, um, many hundreds and hundreds of years later, even at the time of David and then Solomon, they are going to be wicked. All 10 tribes in the earth are all going to be wicked. Never have a good king. And in some ways, the reason for that is because they didn't completely drive out the Canaanites at the time of the conquest here in Joshua. Joshua had a lot of blessing, and that should have translated to obedience, but it didn't. I mean, the words there in Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 33, they are of blessing. They are the most um, blessed out of all of the sons and all the brothers And yet they failed to obey the Lord. And because of that, it allowed for this wickedness to infiltrate them. Yes, many generations later. But that's the kind of short-sightedness sometimes prosperity brings out in us. Maybe out of all the tribes we talked about tonight, Asher might resonate the most with us. Rather than think of obedience being um, a blessing for the future, Like, I'm being blessed now, so I better obey, do what I can to obey. The blessing is for my obedience, and that's going to pay uh, future reward and blessing. But instead, they let the blessing they enjoyed at the moment keep them from setting up future Asher for success, you could say. I mean, we're very blessed and prosperous for the most part, but are we using that prosperity to walk faithfully in an obedience to set up the next generation for success. It'd be foolish for us not to think that we have a lot of good 
opportunities now to, to, uh, to share the gospel, to be about the things of God, to send out missionaries, to be in our neighborhoods, uh, calling people to repentance and to know the Lord. So we should use what we have now for that, lest we, because of our own love for our maybe convenience and comforts, set up for a disastrous future for our kids or our kids' kids or our kids' kids' kids. So it's important to see the lesser here, lesson here in Asher. Um, it's, I guess, a little bit of a mini theme in all of the tribes that we saw today is that, you know, it wasn't so bad. They had some prosperity, but uh, for whatever reason, just sin, they decided to neglect um, to do what God had commanded. Well, that's something I can resonate with for sure. Now, fortunately, like I said, we know the fate of all of the 10 tribes is that they're going to be scattered at the time of the Assyrian conquest, about 720 BC. They're going to be scattered into the world. So that was 2,700 years ago. To this day, those tribes are scattered. Yet Jesus himself promised that the promise of God had not forsaken them, that they would be brought back in, uh, in the last days in order to be restored as the people of God. God knows where they are. And their sins, as heinous as they were, that it got them scattered to the uttermost parts of the world. In saying that, that God is going to bring them back in, he's saying there's still grace. There's still uh, a covenant love that God has for his people, and therefore uh, us. We are ones who participate in God's promise to the Jewish people, as we've been talking about on the Sunday mornings together. There is grace, and it's a grace that has been secured in the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, shedding his blood for the forgiveness not only of the sins of Israel for the 12 tribes, but for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus, even if you're from the most furthest and most remote parts of the world. The gospel is there for us to offer us forgiveness of sin. And so just like we read about in Zebulun and Naphtali, that the Messiah was going to come and be not just um, a, a special, unique man, but be, in fact, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, and all these wonderful titles, that He is our God. He is God in the flesh who made a way for us to be reconciled to God through his blood. So we see a little bit of gospel, I hope, even in this, even in knowing how the story ends, um, that Jesus is the one who is going to fulfill his promises to these scattered people. Who knows where these Issacharites are? I mean, some of the, so we know maybe some Jewish people now that they're from these tribes, but Boy, you, you try to scrounge up a, a man from the tribe of Issachar. We don't know. But you know, you know who knows? God knows. God will draw his people back to himself by his grace one day. And so that's our hope as well. Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, an opportunity just to get our minds into the biblical world and the biblical text again. And while there are sometimes um, uh, difficulties in, in fully grasping all that has been uh, revealed to us because of the distance of time and context, uh, we can understand some very basic and important things about how all are sinners, that no matter how blessed these uh, people and these tribes started off with, um, apart from your grace, we will turn it into dust and ashes, as many of these 
uh, men and women from these tribes did. What hope do we have except that, God, you would promise to preserve us. You would promise to bless us. You would promise to change us, to, to be a person that will not fall into these sins anymore, but by your grace um, forever and ever uh, to be holy and righteous. And we know that's a promise you will fulfill. It's not fulfilled just yet, but it will be fulfilled. And so we eagerly await for that day. We want to walk in faithful obedience now. While we have prosperity uh, to do so and blessing to do so, so may we be found faithful to um, take our moments that we have now, take our resources, take our time and our talents, all of these things, and use them for the furtherance of the gospel. So thank you for each one here again. Thank you for the opportunity to eat and share around the table. Bless the meal and the time together, uh, Jesus, for your name's sake and for your glory's sake. Amen.